0: Anybody hear me okay? Okay, good. Using the podium mic tonight. Last time I was up here, they asked me if I wanted to do the wireless mic, and I said, no, I don't need it. I said, I'm not nearly as Pentecostal as Zeke is, so I'll be fine with this. Actually, I've heard it said that uh, if Zeke can't walk, Zeke can't talk, but I don't know if that's true or not. I've just heard it said. Don't tell him I told you that, though. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Mark Matthews. I want to. Hi. Hi. I, <laughs> I want to welcome you all here for the second session of Calvary Chapel of Healing's summer teaching series, The Kingdom of Heaven is at Hand, based on the Lord's Sermon on the Mount as recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 5 through 7. Last week, Brother Steve Hamilton began the series with an introduction and. <coughs> excuse me. Followed by a very powerful message based on the first four of uh, the eight Beatitudes given in the beginning of Matthew chapter 5. He went through verses 1 through 6. Tonight I'm going to continue where Steve left off. uh, Finishing the study of the remaining four Beatitudes, verses 7 through 12. And then going into the similitudes uh, given in verses 13 through 16. Similitudes, I'll get there. (coughs) It's what they call them, don't blame me. I, not my name, but not my term. As I began to put this study together, I, I made a list of all the pertinent points I thought should be addressed. And When I looked at the completed list, I said, hmm, well, that's about a two- or three-hour message. So I just want to make sure everybody's good in here till 9, 30, 10 o'clock, <laughs> right? No no problems with that. Obviously, I had to pare it down a little, a little bit to, to 50 a lot of time. But that does bring up an important point. The Sermon on the Mount is an unbelievably deep portion of Scripture, and I believe I speak for all the guys who will be teaching when I say that we will be able to present at best in the limited time we're giving uh, a very superficial look at the Sermon on the Mount. We're just really scratching the surface. The hope being that these teachings... (coughs) Excuse me. Anybody here suffer from allergies? The hope being here that these teachings will generate in you a desire to do an in-depth study of the Sermon on your own. The Sermon on the Mount is not for the unbeliever. The Sermon on the Mount does not show the way of salvation for the lost, but the way of life for those already in the kingdom. It puts forth the foundational principles of the church. This is a, a teaching to disciples who already believe. It is a true evaluation of self, not in the light of man, but in the light of God. Through this sermon, Jesus lays out the foundational principles upon which the kingdom of heaven in the form of the church is founded. Proverbs 29:18 says, where there is no vision, the people perish. The Sermon on the Mount is the Lord's vision for his church. It is the Lord's instructions as to how the church is to present itself to the world. The believer's actions are what determines how the church is perceived in the world. And how the church is perceived in the world is how the Lord is perceived in the world. Because we represent the Lord to the world. We put a face on it. Jesus expects his followers to understand and apply these moral principles to their lives. They deal with thoughts and motives as well as with actions. All the character traits listed in the Beatitudes should be marks and goals for which all Christians strive. I also believe that the principles found in the Sermon on the Mount will be the principles that govern in the Millennial Kingdom, where sin is controlled but not eliminated. I also believe that we, in the church, will be those who enforce those principles in that kingdom. And while the Sermon on the Mount lays the foundation for the church, the Beatitudes lay the foundation for the Sermon on the Mount. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. After hearing a sermon on Matthew chapter 5, a young man asked his pastor, he said, Pastor, may I ask you a question? And the pastor said, sure, son, ask whatever you ask, and I'll answer it if I know the answer. He said, Pastor, what exactly is a beatitude? His pastor responded. He said, son, a beatitude, be the attitude, we best all be having. (laughs) And there's a lot of truth in that. The word beatitude simply means blessing or blessed. And I like the definition used in the Amplified Bible. Steve used this last week, and I like it. And, you know, I think Zeke's kind of got several of us hooked on this Amplified Bible now. It's really pretty good. And I'm actually using it for my devotional uh, reading this year. But this is the definition used in the Amplified Bible. It says, To be blessed is to be happy, to be envied, to be spiritually prosperous. With life, joy, and satisfaction in God's favor and salvation, regardless of your outward condition. I think that's a great definition. These blessings belong to the faithful only. And as we will see as we get through this whole sermon, the way to heavenly happiness is in direct contrast to the world's ways. Starting in verse 1. It says, And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth, and he taught them. Now so imagine the scene here in your mind. Put yourself in this picture. You're following the Lord and the disciples. You're in this multitude. Uh, it's a blue sky, green grass, soft breeze. You see the Lord sit down on the hill, and he begins to teach his disciples. You decide to sit down at his feet and Listen. He gaze upon his gentle and kind face. And the crowd hushes and you hear these words come out through the stillness of the moment, saying this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot of men. You are the light of the world, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Let's pray. Father, as we now attempt to study and learn these beatitudes and similitudes, we ask that you go before us, opening our hearts and our minds, so that we we may receive the message and the vision that you have for us in these scriptures. Lord, please guide my words, and may only your truth, according to your heart, come forth. In Jesus' name, amen. The first four Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Steve did a great job covering the first four of the Beatitudes last week, so I'm just going to do a light recap on them and refresh our memories. These first four of the Beatitudes deal with the internal characteristics of the believer, with verse 3 being the key, not only to these primary verses, but I believe to the whole Sermon on the Mount. Verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the spiritually bankrupt. This is the key. We must recognize that it is only by understanding our total lack of righteousness that we can then be emptied of ourselves. Paul recognized his unrighteousness, calling out to God in one place. He said, O wretched man that I am, who will save me? He saw the great need in his own life. It is only by recognizing our total spiritual unworthiness that we can then appreciate the Lord's worth. The first step is always to be emptied of self. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn. When we recognize just how poor in spirit we truly are, we can then mourn over the human condition. Over our own sin and over the sin of the world. We mourn and grieve for ourselves and for all of mankind. Verse 5, blessed are the meek, meekness, gentleness. It also means humility. To have a servant's heart, to be others-centered. Again, you must first be emptied of self. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness to hunger and thirst, craving the righteousness of God in our lives, as we would food and water when we are perishing from lack of them. That becomes the driving force in our life. This hunger for righteousness should now be the driving force in our lives. Again, this only comes about through recognizing our own lack of righteousness. Verses 7-9. through These next three Beatitudes will now tell us how these first four internal character traits in verses three through six should display themselves in the heart of the believer in other words they deal with the external manifestation of the first four beatitudes verse seven blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy what is mercy Mercy can be defined as compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within your power to punish or to harm. Mercy recognizes the sin and then deals with it through gentleness and compassion. Mercy is always a heart thing. Mercy is not something we rationalize in our mind. It's something that we feel in our heart. It is a form of compassion for others. Looking back at the first four Beatitudes, it is through God's mercy that we can be emptied of our pride and brought to poverty of spirit. It is through God's mercy that we can be brought to mourning over ours and over others' spiritual conditions. It is through God's mercy that we can receive the grace of meekness to become gentle. And it is through God's mercy that we can be made to hunger and thirst after righteousness. Therefore, the one who is expected to show mercy is the one who has already received it abundantly. What happens if we choose not to be merciful? James 2.13 tells us this. He says, there will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you have been merciful... God will be merciful when he judges you. Matthew 6.15 But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. The heart of God is always to show mercy and forgiveness. Because of that, the Lord expects his church to always be merciful when dealing with the unsaved, but even more so when dealing with each other. God has shown great mercy to us, therefore he requires us that in turn we show great mercy to others. This is God's heart, and it must be our heart also. And this is not optional. None of these beatitudes are optional. Verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The Greek word for pure here is katheros, which means clean, uncorrupted, blameless, innocent, unsoiled, or unstained. This is a tough one, especially in our culture. We are constantly being bombarded with filth and corruption from every corner of our culture. Everywhere you look, and looking is a big part of the problem. Much of impurity starts with the eyes and then progresses to the mind. There's still no excuse. God requires us to be pure in heart regardless of our cultural condition. How do we do that? Well, one way is how Job did it even way back then. Job 31.1 Job said, I have made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? Job was a married man, and he made a covenant with himself that he was not going to look upon another woman. So we make a covenant with your eyes. And today it's not just men who need to make that covenant. More and more, sexual content and pornography is being aimed at the ladies. So ladies, you too need to make a covenant with your eyes. (coughs) But corruption of the heart isn't just sexual. Many things besides sexual immorality can corrupt the heart. Bitterness, anger, hatred, greed, covetousness, jealousy, pride. The list just goes on and on. And that's the repentant heart. What about the unrepentant heart? God summed that one up pretty good. In Jeremiah 17:9. He says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Well, you might say, what about my Aunt Tilly over there, you know? She's lived forever and she's never said a bad word about anybody. Well, does she love the Lord? Well, not really. Well, her heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. But here in Matthew, we're dealing with a repentant heart. The new heart of the believer. How do we keep it pure? It's only one way. We work at it. We work at it every day. All these things require our conscious effort on a daily basis. Sometimes an hourly basis. Sometimes minute by minute. We need to replace impure thoughts with pure thoughts. And we do that by focusing on the Lord and on his word. In Philippians 4.8, Paul gives us a little help in keeping our minds pure. Paul says, finally, brethren, just as a side note, Paul uses this word finally a lot in his writings. You can do a whole Bible study just finding out where Paul said finally and seeing what he said. He said, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. There's the word, meditate. What do we meditate on? What do we think about? What do we do when we're driving to work and we've got all those long hours? What do we think about? What do we meditate on? Are we meditating on the things of God or are we meditating on the world? Meditate on these things, Paul says. We keep our minds pure simply by keeping impure things out of it. That takes determination and effort on our part. And that can only be achieved if we truly desire it to be achieved. It all comes down to our will. One commentator said this, He said the pure can have greater intimacy with God not because they have earned it but because they are simply more interested in the things of God. What are we interested in? That new promotion? That lady next door that's giving me the come hither look? That guy at work who's showering me with attention with my husband doesn't? What are we interested in? Well, if we're interested in God, God promises to reward that interest. He said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I love that one. I love this one. This is a good one. If we make the effort, God says he will reward us with the greatest blessing ever. We will see God face to face. Now, there's something to sit and meditate upon. That is something man has been longing for since the fall of man. In Job, which is probably the earliest of the biblical writings, Job said this in 19, uh, Job 19, 25 and 26. He says, for I know that my Redeemer lives and he shall stand at last upon the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know. I love this. Job said, this I know. Job was convinced of this. <clears throat> this was not something Job hoped for he says this I know that in my flesh I shall see God what greater blessing can there be but to see our beloved Savior face to face in 1st John two, John tells us this he says beloved now we are children of God And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. The pure in heart shall see God. Verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Peace is one of the fruits of the Spirit and the only one specifically mentioned in the Beatitudes. Galatians five, twenty-two and twenty-three gives us the fruits of the Spirit. <coughs> Excuse me. Five twenty-two says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, some do equate uh, meekness with goodness and gentleness, but peace is the only one that's specifically mentioned. In Hebrews twelve, fourteen the writer tells us, pursue peace with all people. And in John, uh, I'm sorry, James 3:18 says, "Now the fruit of, the, of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace." And Matthew 5:44 and 45, he says, "But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you." Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you that you may be the sons of your Father in heaven that we may be called the sons of God. For the unbeliever, peace is probably the most elusive thing in the world for them to find. We have all heard stories of extremely rich people commenting, that they could just find something that could bring them peace from the chaos and confusion and pain and grief and suffering and loneliness and empty emptiness and the misery that is their life. Does that sound like the unbeliever's life? That sounded like my life before I became a believer. They said if we could just find that, they would be willing to give all that they have to attain it. And the amazing thing is, they can have it for free. All they have to do is ask for it. For the unsaved, true peace can only be found in Christ. Therefore, the church must be the peacemaker in the world. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And second John one three, John tells us Grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. That's a key that's a key verse. Here in Matthew five nine, God clearly states that it is our responsibility as the church. To bring that peace to the world as much as possible. And we do that by spreading the truth and peace of the gospel of Christ. And when we spread that gospel, God joyfully calls us and claims us as his children. Verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 9 ended the description of the internal and external characteristics of the child of God. This next beatitude declares what the response and the reaction of the world will be toward the person that exhibits these characteristics. They will be persecuted. Why? Because the world cannot stand to have its sins and failures pointed out to it. That is why they hate Christ, and that is why they hate us. Expect it. 1 Peter 4, 12-14 says this. He says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial. He's talking about persecution. Do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you. As though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's suffering, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. To be persecuted for Christ is a blessing. We are blessed to partake in whatever extent that we do in the sufferings of Christ, in the persecution that he suffered. I find it interesting that the first beatitude and the last beatitude both end with the same reward. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Present tense possessive pronoun. They already have it. Verses 11 and 12. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Do you see the change between verse 10 and verse 11? Verse 11 says, blessed are you. Verse 11 personalizes the sermon now. He's not talking about them anymore. Now he's talking to you and he's talking to me personally, one-on-one. Persecuted is the Greek word dioko. It means to make to run or to flee, to put to flight, to drive away, to pursue in a hostile manner, in any way whatever, to harass, trouble, or molest. To be persecuted can cost you your job, your home, your family. You may well end up homeless, hungry, and destitute. I was after something to look forward to. Remember that many Roman Christians had to live in the catacombs, underground tombs, just to survive the persecution of Nero and other Roman emperors. Persecution can result in physical or psychological abuse, torture, and in extreme cases, death. Still today, many are martyred for their faith in Christ. As we sit here in this nice air-conditioned building, brothers and sisters throughout the world are being imprisoned, tortured, and murdered for their faith in Christ. That's also something else we should meditate upon. Persecution is not something to be sought, but neither is it something to be feared. The upside is, if we suffer with Christ, we will also be glorified with Christ. Romans eight sixteen and 17 says this. Paul says the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If, there's two ifs in this, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. And the only reason that we can partake of Christ's suffering at all is because he chose to partake of our humanity. And that's another thing to sit and meditate upon. The question for us individually is: How far are we prepared to go as the church? How committed are we to the gospel? Paul was totally committed to the gospel of Christ. Philippians 1:21, Paul said this. He said, "For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain." I believe the Lord expects the same level of commitment from each one of us as well. Doesn't matter how young you are. Doesn't matter how old you are doesn't matter if you're male doesn't matter if you're female doesn't matter if you're rich doesn't matter if you're poor doesn't matter if you're well doesn't matter if you're sick each he expects this from each one of us this level of commitment are we prepared for that a question that we need to ask ourselves and again remember this is a self-examination but if we are prepared then verse 12 tells us to Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. If persecution comes, embrace it. The Lord will reward us greatly for our faith. That's the end of the Beatitudes. Now we'll tackle the similitudes. What is a similitude, Judy asked It is defined as a person or thing that is like or the match or counterpart of another thing. Perfectly clear? Everybody got that one? In other words, something that is similar to something else. Why didn't they just say that? So why do they call these the similitudes? Because they are similar to Beatitudes, but not quite the same. In the similitudes... We have a functional definition and description of the believers along with their influence on the world. Their function and their influence is what this is talking about. It is not so much that they are poor in spirit, though they are, but that they are the salt of the earth. It's not so much that they are merciful and pure in heart, which they are, but it is that they are the light of the world salt and light both these are functions that the church is required to perform in the world verse 13 you are the salt of the earth but if the salt loses its flavor how shall it be seasoned it is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men salt has various functions in the bible just like it does in real life And not in real life, in life. The Bible is real life. In this context, it is being utilized as both a seasoning and a purifier. Salt influences what it comes into contact with. That's what the Lord is telling us we need to do. We need to influence what we come into contact with. Only corrupted salt, salt that has impurities in it, loses its flavor or strength. Pure salt never will. The Lord is telling us that we must never lose our pure flavor by being corrupted by the world, that we are to keep ourselves pure, blessed are the pure in heart. To lose our saltiness means that we stop restraining evil and purifying the world. It means that we become just like the world. And if we get to that point, then we are utterly useless in influencing anything in the world. Eventually, the world will be without the restraint of the church. And when that happens, as we all know, then literally all hell really will break loose on the earth. But as long as we, the church, are in the world, we restrain that evil. Verses 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Our next (coughs) function: we're to be light to the world. Another question to ask ourselves, is my light shining brightly? Again, remember, this is a self-examination. One way as the church that we shine the light to the world is through good works, which put the focus on the Lord. Establishing things such as orphanages, soup kitchens, food pantries, disaster relief ministries, all these demonstrate good works to the world while glorifying the Lord in the process. When disaster strikes, the church should always be the first one there to help, and we usually are. But each of us as individuals are called to shine the light of the Lord as well. How do we do that? I think that probably the best way to do that is simply through love. God expects us to always show love. To show love to the lost, to the homeless, to the poor and needy, to the widow and orphan, remember the book of James, to those in bondage, to drugs or alcohol, Or to abhorrent lifestyles. To our enemies. To those who persecute us. To those who abuse us and torture us. And yes, to those who would kill us. Can we do that? Are we willing? If we're not, maybe we shouldn't call ourselves Christians. Christ was certainly willing to do that. But most of all, we're to show love to each other. John 13, <coughs> excuse me, John 13:35. The Lord said this. He said, by this, all will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. The Lord prefaced verse 35 with 30, verse 34, though. He said, a new commandment I give to you. That you love one another. A new commandment. It's not optional. None of this is optional. If we are going to call ourselves the church, we need to be the church. Period. We need to be the light of the world. That concludes this portion of the Sermon on the Mount. The preamble. The introductionary portion of the sermon. The rest of the sermon will be a call to live out these eight beatitudes by describing to us the process that allows them to come to maturity in the believer's heart. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 gives us the Lord's vision for the church. This is the vision of what the Lord expects from us. The question, when we're finished with this series of teachings, will be, do we believe it? Do we truly believe it? Do we truly believe what the Lord says in this sermon? And if we do, Will we respond to it? Will we apply it? Will we live it? Some will. Some may not. All through the ages, there have been multitudes of those that got the vision, but even greater multitudes of those who didn't or wouldn't. The desire of Pastor Zeke and the leadership here at Calvary is for all of us to get the vision and to live the vision. One guy who got it was a young man named Jim Elliott. Some of you may know him. Most of you may not. happened a long time ago. He was a 29-year-old Christian evangelist. He and four other evangelists were attempting to evangelize and bring the gospel to a tribe of Ecuadorian tribesmen. These guys were headhunters. To make a long story short, on January 8, 1956, Jim Elliott and his four companions were killed by that same tribe of natives. By the way, that whole tribe are almost all Christian today. It is said that Jim Elliott based his life on the following motto. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Jim and those four missionaries, they got the vision. They had the vision. They believed what the Lord said. And by the way, they did not lose their lives that day in 1956. They found them. Jim and the others were on fire for Jesus. They believed him. They lived what he said. The Lord's word lit a fire in them. One of my favorite passages of scripture is in the 24th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. If you remember the story, after the events of the Lord's crucifixion, two disciples were traveling on their, on their way to Emmaus. A stranger, who it turns out later was the Lord, meets them on the road. He sees that they're downcast in their spirit and he asks them why. They explain to him the events that had just transpired in Jerusalem as if he didn't know about him. Scripture tells us that the Lord then gives them a Bible study, starting with Moses, and explains to them why all these things had to transpire. To make another long story short, they finally recognize who this is, and after he disappears, they hurry back to Jerusalem to tell the disciples what happened. As they're recounting the events, they turn to one another and they say this. I love this scripture. It's Luke 24:32." They said, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? They got the vision.
1: Jim Elliot
0: and his four, four companions got the vision. Their hearts burned within them at the word of God. The question that I have to ask then is, as this is a self-examination, when was the last time our heart burned within us at the speaking forth of the word of God? Has it been a while? Has it been ever? And if not, why not? And again, I ask this as much of myself as of anyone else. In the parable of the talents in Matthew, chapter 25, verse 21, it says this. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many. Enter into the joy of your Lord. I'm going to make a confession to you guys. I have no idea what that means, enter into the joy of your Lord. I have no idea at all. But I know this, whatever it means, it's magnificent. Don't you want to hear those words spoken to you? I do. I long for it. I crave for it. I live for it. The words of life. Doesn't your heart burn within you at the sound of those words? All of our life, our hopes, our dreams, all of our blessings in our eternity is contained between the covers of this book. All of God's promises towards us are contained within the covers of this book. Our hearts should burn within us every time the word of the Lord comes forth. First Peter two nine tells us this. He says, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him, who called you out of darkness unto his marvelous light. The Lord saying to us, I have taken you from a sentence of eternal death to a promise of eternal life. Rejoice in that. Live in it. You're the church. Live in that. Matthew 16. Peter made that great declaration after the Lord asked him, he said, Peter, who do you say that I am? Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. The Lord said, Peter, upon this rock I will build my church. Was he talking about Peter? No. He was talking about the great truth that Peter had just uttered. He said, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Lord is not describing a church on the defense. He's not talking about a passive church. He's talking about a church on the offense, an active church, a militant church, a church victorious, the church on the attack. Personally, I'm getting kind of tired of these other guys coming in and trying pushing us around. The next time they come to me and they say, I want to talk to you about my religion or I want to talk to you about my philosophy. I'm going to say to them, I want to talk to you about my God. Because I'll match my God against your religion and your philosophy any day. Your religion and your philosophy you can't save me. My God saves. Your religion and your philosophy can't bring me life. My God brings me life. You're going to be dead. I'm going to be enjoying eternity. Let me tell you about my God. Amen. Amen. Absolutely. The Lord told the disciples, he said, the harvest is great, but the laborers are few. Pray the Lord of the harvest that he'll send laborers. Guys, the harvest is ripe. And we have a message that the world needs to hear. And that message is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The book of Acts tells us how the apostles and the disciples taking that message, turn the world upside down. I think it's time for the church to take that same message and turn the world upside down one more time. And that begins with us. The Lord's telling us to step up. He's saying step up through the church. Step up and be the church. D.L. Moody said a 100 years ago, he said the church is ineffective. Because the world does not believe that the church believes what they say they believe. Let's show the world that we believe it. Let's be the church. One more thing. Don't ever apologize for what you believe. You don't owe them an apology. They owe God an apology. In closing. In 2 Peter 1.3, Peter tells us this, speaking of Christ. He says, His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. In the above scripture, Peter tells us that God has given to us all things that we require to live a life for Him. What are those things that God has given us? He's given us salvation. He's given us His Holy Spirit. He's given us his word. He's given us faith itself. And he's given us access to his throne in heaven. He has given us everything that we need. Therefore, there is no excuse for us to live a life apart from Christ or apart from his kingdom. None. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here. And it's now. And it's ours. The question for each one of us as individual citizens of that kingdom is what are we going to do with it? Would you stand with me as we pray? Lord, we thank you for the vision that you have given to us as your church a vision of what we are to be in this world. We now ask that you, through the power of your Holy Spirit, would enable each of us to live that vision. We cannot do this through the power of our own strength, but we know that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Strengthen us now, Lord. Strengthen us to live lives according to your vision and according to your will. We ask this in the name of our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Next week, Gary Poor will continue in the Sermon on the Mount.